0: Johann Sebastian Bach was a famous German musician and composer. Though he arrived on the scene some 200 years after the Protestant Reformation, his life was forever changed and transformed by the teachings of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli. He once said, the final aim and reason of all music is nothing other than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the Spirit. Therefore, he would sign all of his church music and most of his secular music with the three letters S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria which is the Latin for to God be the glory, or God alone is glorious. Bach recognized that God, through the instrumentation of music that He had gifted His creation, was meant to be a conduit leading creation to sing of God's glory. And as the crowds gathered on what we know as Palm Sunday, as Jesus made His final way up the dusty roads to Jerusalem, the crowds sang glory. They used the instrument of music to praise the one who would come in the name of the lord their king the peoples had been waiting for hundreds of years for their king to come and finally and fully deliver them from their enemies and this mighty warrior king came not mounted on a white warrior horse but on a humble beast of burden. A colt with whom no one had ever ridden before. And as the crowd sang, Hosanna in the highest, the religious leaders plotted. They plotted behind dark corners, thinking of ways that they could finally get rid of this king. Because for them, and for you and I, we love to be king of our lives. And we, like them, are threatened when someone else would dare come into our life and tell us otherwise. The question before us this morning is, who will be king of your life? Will Jesus be king or will you continue to be king? Will you continue to live life your way or will you submit your life to Jesus? And not only recognize with your lips that he's king, but submit to him in your life by obeying his rules. Now, we've taken a few months off from this letter. We call it the Gospel of Luke, because Luke wrote it. Luke was a doctor, he was a physician, and he was also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul tells in his later years of life, when he sat rotting in a cold and dark Roman cell, that Luke alone is with me. Luke was a loyal friend to the Apostle Paul, but he was a studious man. And he had a friend named Theophilus. Funny name. Good friend. And Theophilus was a Christian believer. And Luke picked up his stylus, if you were, to write to his friend, and he wrote him a two-volume book. What a friend, right? Wrote him a book. And part two is what we have come to know as the Gospel of Luke. And part two is what we know as the Acts of the Apostles. And in this first act, in this first book, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chronicles the life of Jesus. He doesn't tell every story. He's not a biographer. But rather, he seeks to, as he says in the opening verse of this Gospel to write to Theophilus an orderly account. That doesn't mean chronological. It means orderly. In order to convince Theophilus or give Theophilus assurance of the things he has come to know and believe. And so, the primary audience of this gospel is Christians. It's not primarily meant to be evangelistic in order In other words, extending a call to repentance and faith. But rather, to give you and I as as the church assurance of the things that we've come to know and believe. In other words, if we've given our life to submit to Jesus as King, well, Luke comes along and says, look, look here, let me show you and demonstrate to you that He is King. Now, as we concluded back in May, a very long section in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is organized around a number of themes, and the first part is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And in the first nine chapters, Jesus is seen traversing the various roads and towns that surrounded this city of Galilee where he was from. But then in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, the attention turns, if you will, from taking the gospel to the people of Galilee to Jesus focused on the the finish line so all the way back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 Luke says when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up that is ascended he set his face to go to Jerusalem Verse 51 of chapter 9 marks a section that comes to its conclusion in chapter 19, verse 27. So 9 to 19, in it Jesus is teaching his disciples this sort of ragtag band of 12 misfits that were fishermen and businessmen, notorious criminals, and a traitor. And he spends this time teaching them what it means to follow him. So right there in chapter 9, he, if you want to follow me, you have to take up, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the rest of the verses are about that. Well, friends, we've come to the the conclusion here in chapter 19. And so from 19 to the end of the book in, in chapter 24, it is the final week of Jesus' life. If this were a movie. It would have been very quick. The, the, the film would have just continually been turning over scene after scene. It would have been a very fast pace. And then all of a sudden, it's as if Luke just sort of pumps the brake, if you will, and slows the tape down. And thoughtfully spends time considering this final week of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And the question before us which will be the question that resounds each of these chapters, is who is going to be king? Is Jesus going to be enthroned as king? Or will the Roman occupiers continue to rule over God's people? Will God's people accept Him as king? Or will they reject Him? So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19, It's found on page 878 in the Pew Bibles provided. Again, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that and uh, take it home as your own, as a gift from us to you. Read it. Get to know God through it. Ask those around you to help you to know and understand God through it. Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus said to, or answered, I tell you, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principled men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on His words. Jesus is the long-awaited King who has come to bring peace by rescuing God's people from their sins and ushering in His eternal kingdom. That's the point that Luke has for us. That Jesus is the long-awaited King who has come to bring peace Peace, not war. Peace, not judgment. And He has brought this peace by rescuing them from their sins and ushering in His eternal kingdom. And the purpose of our time this morning is to, I hope, recognize that Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to peace. This world longs for peace. You long for peace in your life, in your relationship, in your family, among your neighbors. You you desire peace for this world. And this world has a lot of solutions about how you can have peace. But the Bible says there's only one way that you and I can have peace with God and with one another, and that is through the reign of Jesus through the kingship of Jesus. And I want to hang our thoughts this morning on two words. So if you take notes, two words. Triumph and tragedy. Triumph and tragedy. In verses 28 through 40, we see the triumph of King Jesus. We see Jesus coming into his city triumphantly with praises all around Him, with songs singing glory to God in the highest. But then the clouds roll in, and the scene goes dark as Jesus stands and looks over His city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace. And tragically, They don't see Jesus as king, and they don't see him as the way to peace. So this is what we want to think about this morning. First, triumph, the triumphant king. Luke records for us a familiar story that no doubt as a child you grew up loving, having little palm branches that we would wave at one another for some strange reason, um, on Sunday mornings, the Sunday before Easter. Yes, that beloved Palm Sunday, where we would gather and learn about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the first thing we notice here in this text is that Jesus sovereignly orchestrates the whole thing. In other words, Jesus is not caught up, as Albert Schweitzer said, in the wheel of destruction. In other words, that Jesus got caught up in the momentum and that momentum spiraled out of control and therefore led ultimately to His death. Schweitzer argued that Jesus his fate was a, was a result of a terrible circumstance. No, 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 friend, you see in this text that Jesus is orchestrating this entire day around this theme. He is going public. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been very hush-hush about his identity. Why? Well, it's because the nation of Israel had been in captivity for so many years, there was anxiety on every corner. They were desiring to remove these Roman occupiers. They they wanted Rome out of their cities. They wanted these wicked kingdoms to be gone. They were frustrated. And there was a lot of pent-up anxiety centered around the Messiah. When will he come? And there had been revolts from before. And these revolts were squashed down by the Roman government. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that the people did not get the wrong expectation. That He did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. That the Messiah was not going to uh, destroy the Roman occupiers. And, and finally and fully set up this eternal kingdom now, but that He was ushering in a spiritual kingdom. And later on, He would come back and establish this earthly kingdom. And so Jesus was careful throughout His ministry to make clear who His identity was, but only to those closest to Him. And what we see Jesus doing is He ascends up to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem, all right, because geographically it is higher than the rest of the surrounding region. And so as they make their way up, Jesus orchestrates in such a way so that everyone can see his identity as the triumphant king. And you might find it strange here, this interchange between Jesus and his disciples, about going and acquiring this cult, this, this fowl of a donkey. And we're told that nobody has ever ridden on it. The kings of Israel would often ride on donkeys as a symbol of God's kingship and their submission to Him. A kingdom of humility. And you heard earlier from Zechariah chapter 9 that the people were to expect a king who would come in this way. And we're told the disciples are sent and then They find the colt just as they had found. Look at verse 32. That's the key verse. So those who were sent away and found it just as He had told them. You think, Jesus owned nothing. He had no money. He had nothing. had no possessions, just the clothes on His back. He tells us at one point that He didn't even have a pillow to sleep. A man of nothing, of tremendous humility, orchestrates these events so that the people will be unmistaken in who He truly is. His plan was perfect. It was the Father's plan that He was fulfilling. He was the King that God's people needed. And it is a reminder to us in these final chapters of Luke's Gospel that God sovereignly orchestrates His redemptive plan. That this is a divine plan that is unfolding before us. My friends, the crowd, don't miss it. And we're told here in verse thirty five that they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks this is clothes all right so if you don't if we don't use that word anymore but clothes they took their clothes and they threw it on the back of that little baby donkey and notice here they sat Jesus on it. I what a wonderful picture of their own recognition and submission. they understand what they're doing. This is our king and he's on a, on a donkey, not on a mighty chariot like, the, like Caesar would have if he rolled through town. He's this little donkey and, and our old shabby clothes are, are his saddle. And if, as it were, a modern day rolling out the red carpet, they begin to throw their clothes upon the, upon the ground. What a picture of submission. You, you take these nice clothes, these valuable possessions, and he threw them on this dirty and dusty ground. To symbolize your own willful submission and recognition that Jesus is King. And then we see something almost wonderful happen. As their eyes, if you will, are opened to Jesus' true identity, they begin to sing praise to Him. Look here at verse 38. Uh, Rather, verse 37, as they were drawing near, along down they went down the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, don't be confused by that, it's the same thing, the whole multitude of his disciples. In other words, this is more than just the twelve. This is is a whole host that begin to come out. Friend, what just happened the day before? Well, John tells us in his gospel account, there was a dead guy that's been rotting in a cave for four days, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, Lazarus, come on out of there. Do you not think there might have been a little bit of excitement in Bethany because the most notorious person in town was dead and is now alive? And all of this excitement because of the mighty works that they had seen, they knew Lazarus was dead. They knew of all the work that God had been doing through Jesus and all that they could do as they saw their king riding in is to sing praise. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you remember this summer, we, we looked at a couple Hallel Psalms. Hallel is where you, we get our English word, hallelujah. It, it simply means to sing praise, to praise, to acknowledge praise. And there's a collection of hymns that were sung during the Passover, which is the historic time frame that we are in, called the Hillel. And there's one of these Hillels. It is Psalm 118. This is what they're singing as Jesus goes by. In Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Blessed is he. Now notice here that they add, or Luke records for us, the word King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're acknowledging His kingship. That He is the Davidic King. Friends, that's the whole argument Lucas had all the way back to the beginning of this letter. That Jesus is the long-awaited King. And here He comes at His, if you will, coronation. With all the pomp and circumstance. Not with the pomp and circumstance of Caesar and the Roman occupying empire. But with the group of farmers and fishermen on a dusty road on a humble donkey what kind of king will he be well notice what he says they sing peace in heaven and glory in the highest oh you hear it don't you you hear it Isn't that what the angels sang when Jesus was born? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. This is a wonderful inclusio that Luke provides us as, as we see that what the angels sang at his birth as they knew His true identity has come to reality. He is the King of glory. He is the One. He he is God's eternal Son who has come to fully and finally deliver God's people. But it will not be through a mighty occupying army, but through a bloody cross. It will not be through bows and arrows. But through him, laying down his own life for us, well, friend. If you doubt that this is the point, Luke gives us verse thirty-nine as evidence that even the religious leaders get what's happening. We're told in verse thirty-nine, the Pharisees said, "In rebuke, teacher, rebuke your disciples." In other words, they know they're committing blasphemy. If Jesus isn't God, this is blasphemy. If Jesus isn't really the king, then this is utter and total blasphemy. Jesus responds. If these disciples were silent, the inanimate world around would begin to sing praise. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory above and the sky above. Above, the firmament sings his praise it's wonderful that even rocks know who jesus is some of us are rocks this morning and we don't know who jesus is And friend the question before you and before me is who will be king of your life will it be jesus You cannot have peace and and live life your own way. It's just simply impossible. That is why in your gut at night, as you wrestle over all of your sorrows and anxieties and frustrations, you cannot ever get rest. Because it's only as you submit yourself to this sovereign king who orchestrates not only his life but your life that you and I can have peace. Friend, we ought to join in with Thomas Kelly as he sings, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the Son of Man, Son of Sorrow now. From the fight returned victorious, Every knee to Him shall bow. Crown Him, crown Him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Jesus was victorious, a victorious and triumphant King. Through His death on the cross, He finally and fully defeated God's enemies. He is the King. And He enters Jerusalem triumphantly, ushering in a new era of redemptive history. An era marked not by judgment, but peace. But tragically, not everyone accepted Him as King. In verse 41-48, through Luke records a tragic scene of the rejection of Jesus. Not everybody was singing that day. Not everyone was laying their clothes on the ground and waving palm branches, as Mark tells us. There were some who were plotting to kill Him. Imagine the scene here for just a moment. All of the celebration. As the disciples are singing and chanting and dancing, the King has finally come. Jesus separates Himself. And walks into the temple. The temple was a glorious sight. King Herod had built it. It was a splendor. There was nothing like it. Nothing great and beautiful. It sang of God's power and might and glory. And Jesus walks into it. It was his favorite place to be. You remember as a 12-year-old boy, where, where was he found when his parents lost him? But in the temple. It was the meeting place of God's people with God. It's where they met Him. In the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ten Commandments therein, and the staff. It was where God mediated His covenant with His people through the blood sacrifices, it was the visible picture of the Shekinah glory of God. But here's something that radically happened. When they built that second temple, we are never told in our Old Testament that the Shekinah glory of God descended upon it like it did in the first temple, in, the Sol- in Solomon's temple. No, this was man's temple. This was Herod's temple. And Jesus walks in and laments. As I mentioned earlier, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. And the king of peace has arrived, yet they don't see it. They missed it. They willfully chose to to ignore the clear identity of Jesus. And what are we told but that their eyes were blinded? Look at the text. Verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He was going to bring peace through the blood of His cross, but they rejected it. And now and now they are hidden from your eyes. Friend, this is what a God does. This is what our God does when we reject Him. He blinds our eyes so that we cannot see, so that we cannot believe. God's greatest act of judgment is blinding our spiritual eyes so that we cannot believe in Jesus, and that's what He does, because we willfully rejected Him. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus paints a horrific picture of judgment because of the Because of the city, because of the nation's rejection of Jesus as as king, God in his glory destroyed that city. And in A.D. 70, the Romans did exactly what Jesus said they would do. The emperor Titus surrounded the city and destroyed everyone therein. The city that was meant to be a city of peace. As all the people fled from the mountains and the countryside, as the, art, the, the Roman occupying army was coming, they fled into the walls. There they thought they would be safe, that everything would be okay, that this city, this temple, this mighty, glorious place would protect them from the enemy. It did not. God destroyed every one of them in judgment because they rejected Jesus as king. Because as he says there at the end of verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The apostle Paul says it this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he argues that reconciliation with God has been brought about by the by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And he exhorts them to repentance. And he concludes by saying, today is the day of salvation. Today. See, friend, you you don't know when that visitation is going to take place. You you don't know when the end is near. You're not promised tomorrow. None of us are. We just have today. This is it. We have today, and there's only a few hours left. Twelve by my watch. There may not be tomorrow. It is a reminder of God's compassion for even the brokenness. Friend, do we weep over our own city the way Jesus wept over Jerusalem? We weep over the brokenness, the broken homes, the broken families, the broken lives. That we have we have what will bring peace. We have it, we know it, but yet we withhold it. JC Ryle writes this, "We err greatly if we suppose that Christ cares none for none but his own believing people. He cares for all. His heart is wide enough to take an interest in all mankind." His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. He has a love of general pity for the man who is going on still in wickedness, as well as a love of special affection for the sheep who hear his voice and follow him. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their conduct, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and was not ready to save. Brothers and sisters, let us never come to a point of hardness of our own hearts to think that God cannot still save. God promises to save. Well, the scene concludes, friends, with a very short account. Luke's account of the the temple cleansing is quite brief, and we'll cover it in the same short. In this particular passage, Jesus functions, if you will, as an authoritative priest cleansing the temple. Remember, the temple was the place where the, the, the sacrifices were to take place. It was a place to be holy, where God's people could be reconciled to Him. But what happened? Well, they took the temple and turned it into a means of economic gain. This is what Jesus says when, when He says, You've turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers. Well Jesus is most likely in the court of the Gentiles. This is the place in the temple where the Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews could mingle together. Now you have to know that during this season, the Passover season, Jews would have been traveling many, many miles to come to Jerusalem in order to present their sacrifice. And they would not have, you know, drug a bull along with them or some sort of goat or bird or whatever they were sacrificing from their homeland. It would have been too costly. And so what they did is they would go here in the, in the court of the Gentiles and buy their sacrifices. You think, well, that's, that's wise. That's, that's pretty kind of them. Ah, but here's the catch. If you're in collusion with the guy who's selling said animal and you could maybe encourage him to mark it up a bit and to skim a little bit off the top, That would be quite wicked. Oh, but what if they'll only accept one kind of currency, a currency that you don't have? Well, then you could create uh, an exchange, if you will, a marketplace where the coins could be exchanged for the temple coins. Well, of course, that's going to come at a quite expensive fee as well. You see, the religious leaders had concocted an entire system in which they themselves lined their pockets, and Jesus was furious. The very place where the people were to meet with God had been turned into a religious sham. And more than that, look at verse 47. And when he was teaching in the temple, the chief priest, that is the guys who were in charge of the sacrifices, the ones that were helping bring about atonement, and the scribes, that is the the teachers... The, 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 the men who were the, you know, the Bible experts and the principled men, that is the elders, the ones that were you know, the leaders, what, what do what we learn? They were seeking to destroy, to kill Jesus. Just imagine the, the, the irony. The very people who, who were in charge of killing the sacrificial lambs I want to kill the sacrificial lamb. Luke here hints at what will bring peace. The tragedy of this whole scene is that the very people who should have got it, they didn't get it. Friend, this is the wonderful good news for you this morning. This is the good news of the upside down kingdom of Jesus. That Jesus does not save the noble and the powerful and the religious leaders. Jesus saves the least of these. The foolish and the despised. The men and women who are nothing. This is who, Jesus. He saves people like you and like me. Sinners who deserve God's judgment. Who deserve what we see recorded in this text. But by the grace of God, He gives us eternal life through Jesus. What began as a day of celebration. The King has come. Hosanna in the highest. Glory be to God. Ends in tragedy. It's God's own people. Reject Jesus as King. Friend, the question before you, I, it remains. Will Jesus be King? Will, will you obey Him? Will you live life His way? It's, it's found in His Word. As mysteriously as the crowds gathered to sing praises, so they disappeared. And there alone was Jesus. In Mark's account of this scene, he tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went, to, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All the pomp and all the circumstance. In just a few days will be a bloody cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope that we would imagine in our, our mind's eye the, the sight God has returned to His temple. The Shekinah glory has returned. And they don't see it. Can you imagine the thoughts that were in Jesus' mind? Everything that he put his eyes upon in a matter of days was going to be utterly useless. The smell of the sacrifices, the bleeding of animals, the coins and the exchanges would become obsolete. No more priest, no more incense, no more blood, no more sacrifices, no more altar, no more curtain. All of it would be put away once and for all through the death of this triumphant king on a bloody Roman cross. There's nothing more glorious than that. Let's pray. O God, You are our King. And I pray that we might see Jesus now as King. Not merely confess Him with our lips, but surrender to Him with our lives. All glory be to Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory alone to You, O God, for this great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friend, let's stand and sing a final hymn that acknowledges Jesus and His glory and all glory be to Christ. Let's stand and sing.